0: This is an Irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest today is Nick Repatrizon. Nick is the author of a new book called Digital Communion, Marshall McLuhan's Vision for a Virtual Age. This interview is a bit of a rarity because I'm interviewing someone who hasn't spent much time in evangelical circles, but rather was raised and is a practicing Catholic. The reason I'm doing so is because in another rarity, I'm talking to someone who also really enjoys the writing of Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan is considered by some to be sort of the prophet of the internet. He wrote books like Understanding Media and The Medium is the Massage in the 60s and 70s and experienced a lot of popularity back then and has been since rediscovered time and again by uh, people who are fascinated with the effect of that using media has on us books like the medium is the massage have a really prescient quality to them about how they sort of anticipated how things like using the internet would affect us as people and what nick's book brings to the fore is how much marshall McLuhan's own understanding of the world through christianity as someone who was raised as a sort of in a sort of vague Protestant uh, evangelical or Christian space and was a later uh, convert to Catholicism, how that really affected the way that he viewed the world and affected the sorts of changes that he saw coming as a result of things like television and computers and what would eventually become the internet. It's a really fascinating conversation that goes a lot of various directions. Marshall McLuhan's own writing is sort of hodgepodge and filled with axioms and things that don't necessarily connect and in that same manner some of the questions that I ask of Nick do not really <laughs> connect there might not always be segues and that is sort of in keeping with McLuhan's own writing and approach to discussions. We'll get to the interview with Nick in just a moment but first I want to talk to you a little bit about how you can support this show directly. The first and best way you can do that is by subscribing to my publication, The Post-Evangelical Post. Exvangelical is a production of The Post-Evangelical Post, which is published over on Substack. You might be wondering why I chose Substack over something like Patreon, and really it's a whole bunch of various considerations, including the fact that I both write and conduct podcast interviews and things like that, and... Substack is really just a more versatile tool for all of those different channels. In addition to that, there are things like being able to export member information and other information that is not available on Patreon or other things. And as a result, that's why I've chosen Substack. Uh, You can find out more about that over at PostevangelicalPost.com. You can subscribe at four, six, or eight dollars a month or sign up for free and get occasional updates as well. What will the membership get you? Well, first, it will you can receive ad-free podcast feeds to both Exvangelical and my other podcast, Powers and Principalities, as well as Discord access and access to subscriber-only writing. And that will be expanding in the later part of 2022 as well once my book manuscript is done. In addition, I donate 25% of my net revenue each month to organizations that serve populations harmed by white evangelicalism. This is a type of individual reparations that I'm doing and trying to bake it directly into my business model. I understand that what I do does touch on some sensitive topics, but I also understand that I need to be able to at least cover my expenses and be able to have some financial return for the amount of time that I invest in this work as well. But doing it in within this manner to me is consistent with the overall values that I hold as well as those that I that I work to aspire to. I have as of right now just under 70 paid subscribers to the Post Evangelical Post and I would love to get that number closer to 100 within the next few months if you do want to support me through patreon i do still have a sort of legacy patreon that is available at patreon.com slash exvangelical and i can opt you into this if you prefer that as a platform as well if you want to support me via a one-time donation you can also check the show notes for a venmo link I really appreciate you listening to this and listening to any of the interviews that I release. Uh, It's really valuable to me and I hope it is valuable to you. If you want to learn about any other podcasts that are published by the Irreverent Media Group, head on over to irreverent.fm to learn about those shows as well. All right, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest today is Nick Repatrizon. Nick is a writer for the millions, culture editor for Image Journal, and author of the new book, Digital Communion, Marshall McLuhan's Vision for a Virtual Age. <laughs> Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. This is a, actually a rarity. I'm interviewing someone who, to my knowledge, didn't spend a lot of time in evangelical circles, but I'm doing so for a very good reason. We're here to talk about Marshall McLuhan. Megan O'Giblin, who I interviewed previously on this show, mentioned your then-unpublished book about McLuhan, and that really piqued my interest. We'll get into how we both sort of came across Marshall McLuhan and his work. But before that, I would like to dive right in. And if you could talk a little bit about your relationship to Catholicism and how and maybe even Christianity at large and how you relate to that aspect of the world today. (laughs)
1: sure yeah i am a cradle catholic which you know in our i guess nomenclature means you know born into the church come from an italian family and uh have stayed in the church my whole life my daughters go to catholic school my wife is spanish and ecuadorian so this is like the World Cup of Catholicism kind of at this house right now. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a big part of our life. And, and, uh, as a writer, I have kind of jumped between Catholic slash Christian publications and more secular places. I felt really comfortable going between the two in part because I think it's, it's important and healthy both as a writer and a thinker and maybe also as a person to jump between those places. So my, you know growing up in a in new jersey which is a heavily catholic place it, it it was never something that i really understood from the outside until i went to a lutheran college in pennsylvania and it was my first time i kind of outside of a catholic space and uh it was certainly instructive but i in my own writing and, and sort of in my own life i'm, I'm just very much drawn to the story of Catholicism and the mystery, and of course the art and literature, kind of keeps me there.
0: So. Mm, mm-hmm. You mentioned just just then that you didn't, you weren't really exposed to Protestantism until college. I I had the reverse, but it was I grew up in a very small town Protestant town in Indiana. I, I only knew one Catholic family, and then we moved to the suburbs of Chicago, which is much higher representation of Catholicism. So. That sort of that sort of experience of of seeing the other the other side of there's other as other obviously uh, there's other Orthodox traditions and other things but between the two Catholicism and the 500 years of Protestantism within especially within uh, the American context are the two largest. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Let's talk about a little a different type of encounter, which is a literary encounter. When did you first learn about Marshall McLuhan, and what was the sort of context? And maybe, maybe even if you could share for the listener who's not familiar with who Marshall McLuhan is, a, maybe a little bit. We'll obviously be spending most of our conversation talking about his biography as well as his his thinking and work. But let's start there with just where you first came came across McLuhan, and if you, after that, just a little bit about McLuhan to ground the conversation.
1: Sure. Yeah, McLuhan was someone really as an undergrad that I first was introduced to sort of tangentially in a course on Thomas Pynchon, Don DeLillo, postmodern American writers, who also happened to be Catholics. And the professor was a professor who was from, he got his doctorate from UCLA and came to us in Pennsylvania from the West Coast and really gave me a new perspective on what was happening in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in American literature. And McLuhan kind of snuck his way into some conversations, but I really didn't know much about him beyond kind of the, the aphoristic taglines and this sort of stuff that a lot of people have heard of, Medium is a Message, Global Village, which are actually pretty complicated and, and paradoxical concepts, but, but sort of are pop and, and culture, I guess, in their in their nature. So I didn't dig much into him as an undergrad beyond that initial introduction. But in the past 10 years or so, when I realized or start to realize the kind of religious underpinning of his work and how deeply religious he was, and at the same time, sort of this pop culture phenomenon, I'm always interested in sort of pop culture Catholics. I think there is sort of a, a unique, at the moment, popular Catholic presence. I mean, when I try to explain to people that Stephen Colbert, Lady Gaga, like these are pop culture Catholics who are deeply Catholic in their sensibility and who don't see we see kind of the tension between like the personal self and the pop self kind of as generative, then it helps me think of McLuhan from that earlier generation
0: could you elaborate on that a little bit? Cause I'd, I, I think that would be really instructive for this particular audience because it is primarily evangelical and has a, has a relationship that is very different than perhaps the Catholic one. So it might be a study of contrast there as far as what you said about that pop, you know, pop and personal self.
1: Yeah. So my, I mean, my kind of Personal Catholicism is heavily influenced by what are known as the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, and uh, it's it's you know, Georgetown, um, Loyola, Boston College. Like a lot of colleges have an affiliation with the Jesuits, and the Jesuits is a highly they're highly intellectual and, and art driven. So for me, Catholicism and faith have always been inextricable from storytelling, expression, art, paradox sometimes uncomfortable tensions, you know, those sort of things. So I'm like definitely an Andy Warhol kind of Catholic in that sense. And so Andy Warhol for me was like the entry point to something called pop Catholicism, where you have an incredibly well-known artist or writer or performer who is very much in the secular world and comfortable with it, but also in the Catholic mystical tradition. And they don't see those two things as being mutually exclusive. They actually find them to be the synthesis there. They're generative. So even someone like Stephen Colbert, who is, I believe was a, a Sunday school teacher in New Jersey up until recently, was a deeply Catholic person and is a satirist and a performer and a comedian who has these moments of great religious introspection on his show that are sort of unheard of in in contemporary American entertainment. And they're not always patently Catholic, but they are certainly Christian and they're faith-filled. So for me, I see in, in them this kind of unique way to approach the public self as being anchored in this maybe esoteric, mystical, Catholic practice and sensibility. And for you know it might not be true for all catholics but certainly the catholicism that that I come from and subscribe to find those two things as, as working well together
0: thank you thank you for uh, and and McLuhan in particular was a a, a later in life well at least at college age and around that time he was a convert he was raised you have a a quote that he described his upbringing as loosely protestant <laughs> but then he he it was it was more of a intellectual and academic engagement with some other Catholic thinkers that drew him to Catholicism to begin with, correct
1: yeah, yeah as that, you're right he was his mom wasn't very happy when he told her via letters that he was thinking of uh, going over to the papists and uh and she was she was a little miffed at that, and he was as you, as you note quite influenced by other Catholic converts, Gerard Manley Hopkins, the Jesuit poet, was, was sort of a defining light for him. And Hopkins' mom also wasn't too happy, so it's kind of a connection there. But you know, Hopkins was an incredible poetic stylist, probably one of the most influential and, and innovative writers ever, I think, in, in his prosody and his poetry. And and McLuhan was fascinated by him. And he saw in him a Catholic writer who broke with orthodoxy, and did things that were quite progressive stylistically as a writer for his time. And while McLuhan was also interested in in Chesterton, and I think Chesterton was formative, McLuhan was especially drawn to uh, James Joyce, who is, I mean, for me, the most Catholic writer ever, but for others, maybe who are more Skeptical, they think that his lapsed Catholic, which is somebody who sort of left the church, disengages him. But for me, you know, it, and, and certainly in listening to, you know, your show and hearing you talk about this, it's, you know, the distance doesn't mean necessarily separation, you <laughs> know? Yeah. So yeah, I think Joyce was someone that, that McLuhan thought was Catholic to the core and its paradoxes really anchored his, his quite fantastic writing.
0: I want to pick out a couple of different things that that you point out in the book. One is something you already touched on, which is that, and I think it may be it may be a difference between some types of Catholicism and some types of fundamentalist evangelicalism, which can be anti-intellectual. You write that rather than an intellectual vice, belief charged the Catholic thinker. And I, I apologize, I can't remember if that was a, if you were making a quote or if that was. That was that was your your writing, but that seems to be what animated McLuhan and what what also may have drawn you to the same sort of work that and and uh, literature that you study now.
1: Yeah, because I think that I mean my my interest has been it, it, I guess it's a mixture of like coming from immigrant family, um, both myself and my wife. So there's like that folk kind of piety, and you know. Our house is full of like Virgin Mary statues and you know, crucifixes and rosaries, like my daughters have a rosary collection. Like it's you know, you've got like that folk kind of piety, but it's also juxtaposed with the Jesuit inclination towards being in the world. That is not monastic contemplative. It is it is part of everyday secular life. So I'm for the past eighteen years I've been a, a public school teacher of English. I work all day long with people you know young kids in a in a secular setting we talk about McLuhan, talk about tony morrison talk about you know all kinds of stuff like that but it's you know so my life as a teacher as a writer is in those spaces so i think for jesuit inclined catholics catholicism is a place of open inquiry and also i would use the word strangeness and i use that word in a kind of positive way for art I think art and religion at their best are really weird and that's sort <laughs> yeah. of good you know yeah. like it's 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 unusual it's supposed to be supernatural like in the in the truest sense of the world it transcends the, the material so for McLuhan who was really trained as a, a a scholar of literature you know his PhD at Cambridge was on the The satirist Thomas Nash, who was a really kind of, I guess, dirty is the right word. Like he just wrote some crazy stuff. And, (laughs) and, and, you know, to see like McLuhan, who was this very look kind of like formal fellow and and studying this, this guy who, who wrote, he would talk, uh, Thomas Nash would talk about prostituting himself via his pen. Like he was, he would, he would go out there in, in sort of wild places. And, but McLuhan thought, that satirists and people who made puns and people who were comedic like James Joyce pushed the borders of language that they gave it, they allowed it to stretch. And for a Catholic, and this is not exclusive to Catholicism, for sure, but for a Catholic, at least in McLuhan's time, that meant going to mass in Latin. So they'd go to church and the priest would be talking in another language, not the language you talk at your kitchen table or in school. And that made it weird. It made it strange, and it made it memorable and theatrical, and that all works together with the intellect and the smells and bells, as they say, and it becomes something else.
0: And was it the the way in which the way in which McLuhan was attuned to those environmental things, both the environmental aspects of a traditional Catholic mass, as well as this literary training that he has, that makes him so tuned in to perceiving and and starting to to notice the sort of the shifts. And uh, he was writing in the fifties and sixties through the seventies and I'm a geriatric millennial. So like, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I briefly remember a time before computers and things like that, but at the same time, that was also a period of considerable media upheaval. So how did those two, how did those two things start to like intersect in his work and what he started to, to comment on and study. Because as you mentioned, he was, he was trained as a literature professor, but then started this, helped contribute to the beginnings of what is now media studies.
1: Yeah, I, I like the, your usage of the word perceiving or perception, because I think that is the key. He, his first book was A Mechanical Bride, and I think it was published in 1951. It's this really kind of odd little book where he picked out, print advertisements and studied them so closely that it's almost it almost reaches the point of parody. Like he reads into the layout of a of a jewelry ad or like a a woman standing in a in a in a sort of like a fashion magazine and and he just like so goes for it. And it seems like he's having a lot of fun while he's doing it. Like he's carking jokes and stuff. And he realized that it was the wrong for him to be writing, that he was writing of the mechanical world, which was really on its way out. And he was fond of uh, the word obsolescence, which means a little bit different than something that's obsolete. So it's not like the world that he was talking about was fully gone, but it was about to be. So when you have a time like that, and as you describe sort of within your own life, there has been those obsolescence moments, you know, moving towards the digital world from the analog, those are like the richest moments where we can really see what's at the heart of, of communication. So McLuhan went from the mechanical bride to looking at the ways in which our media transform the environment of our life. So his Gutenberg galaxy, understanding media, then leading to kind of like his high points of the mid-60s and the 70s, as you say, he fully became a media critic. And he was a critic and a participant. Everywhere that you would look, Marshall McLuhan was. And every magazine that you could imagine, Vogue magazine had a feature on him and and just let him write like 2000 words on his esoteric kind of view of the world. He had this incredible Playboy interview. It's one of my favorites of his. He was I think New York times did like 20 something stories on him in 1967 alone. Like people loved him and he was on TV and he was Goldie Hawn had a tagline about him and her laughing show and Yoko Ono and John Lennon interviewed him. Like it's the weirdest like mixture of, I mean, he was a superstar, but at the same time he was this older Canadian professor of literature at like a Warhol kind of pop show. Like he was so out of place, but that's perfect because I mean, we're all out of place in our own ways. And he just realized the power in that. And that allowed him to be, as you mentioned before, his ability to perceive was sharp and he tended to not really make value judgments. He just looked and documented and wrote it down and inhabited those worlds. And that's what gave him a prophetic touch that other people didn't or haven't really been able to catch.
0: Yeah, and in my own sort of so where I learned about McLuhan oddly enough was within the context of a class called Western Intellectual and Social History. And it was it was it was taught by what I now can name as like a Christian reconstructionist professor. Very different type of environment to to learn about someone like McLuhan, but it, even that professor who definitely had a very particular agenda with the type of understanding that he wanted to instill. I remember being assigned understanding media and not really understanding it, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. like not like not really understanding it. As but then rediscovering some of his other work later, and it is definitely he he wrote and spoke in in axioms. Like you mentioned, the medium is the message. Uh, you know, a printing error led to the medium is the mas- massage, which he thought was hilarious, and he ran with it. And that was one of his most famous books, with a incredible typographic design by his collaborator Quentin Fiore. And I yeah, I'd I'd love to even uh, sort of McLuhan type style before we keep digging into some of the other parts of your book talk about some of those the sort of prescience of of a lot of some some of those statements one of them let's start with let's start with the medium is the message you mentioned like that that is a deceptively simple deceptively simple statement but i think maybe even within our social media climate now it really rings true (laughs) you know it doesn't matter what is said as long as you keep tweeting and posting (laughs) like yeah <laughs>
1: you know, it, it's yeah. I, I like that you brought up our contemporary kind of equivalent. I think in in that phrase, "the medium is the message," its simplicity is is true. Like the like a simple interpretation of it, and then the more complex clue and intention is simultaneously also true. So I think he he had an, el- an elasticity to his metaphors that allowed him to to kind of reach multiple audiences. A lot of people, when they talk about the medium as a message, they kind of render it as, you know, if you text someone, it's not so much what the content of the text is, which probably most of our texts are, you know, forgettable at some point. Um, it's the fact that you're texting someone. Uh, Mm -hmm. that, that's the the true thing that's interesting. And what McLuhan, who had to certainly explain this himself, because you know, he found, he, he would be the first to admit that he was confusing as hell, sort of. And, and <laughs> he's all right with that, you know? So, yeah, um, yeah. so what he explained was that he said that the medium as a message means that when we, whatever medium or media that we use, it, it's the effect on us and our environment via that. So it, it is true that it's not important, the content of the text that I send, but what is important that I'm using a non audio manner of communication and I'm using its own language I'm using my fingers I'm not using a keypad in the sense of like a computer I'm using a handheld device I'm probably dashing it off like between classes or you know in a rush it's the surrounding environment that creates the true message and true experience so when we think of it that way and I think of, of Twitter I think you mentioned Twitter before which I'm fascinated by reviled by simultaneously. It's just, it's, it's the weirdest like (laughs) space of my life, I would say. And whenever I think of Twitter, I think of in a, in a spatial sense, like this long tunnel with a lot of lights on all sides and a lot of like wailing and gnashing of teeth, sort of like, it's just a really loud place and a fast place. And, and I think if we follow McLuhan's vision, you know, it's healthy to ask ourselves what, has that done to our conception of language and communication, building of our own identity, reception of other people's identities? It's done a lot. And I think that the medium is a message, as you say, is the most sort of popular McLuhanism. And yet it makes so much sense with that idea of the transformation of the environment. really, really holds true
0: yeah, one of the other things he writes in in the medium is the massage, and I'm sure in other places as well, is this idea that environments are invisible. You just and even that, even that in and of itself is not something we always think of. And again, I am thinking of it within that sort of contemporary context of the way in which, especially since the pandemic and and lingering effects of that, as well as the uncertainty that we all sort of face here in the United States and elsewhere in the world surrounding covid safety our reliance on those things is is not going away the other one that i i feel dovetails into this and uh, is the the phrase first we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us so how do you again with engaging with 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 McLuhan's thinking there how do you how do you see that playing out for us today yeah if
1: what, what social media has offered us is another mode of communication which we've always we've always desired multiple modes of communication in life you know going from oral to written to performative and, and what it's done is it's given us immediate and eternal accessibility and expectation of ex- accessibility and there's nowhere to hide really at this point because if you do hide Someone will wonder why you're hiding. And if you never got it in the first place, they'll also wonder why you're not there. So you have to be there in a way. So you have to be eternally present. And it's so hard to explain that to someone who never experienced a world before that. So, you know, I, I mean, the best that I can remember is getting the AOL like CD in the mail and the dial-up screaming of getting on the internet and my (laughs) sister not being able to use her phone and telling me get off. So like even in that negotiation of space and time, there was a recognition that there was a separation between those worlds, that if she was going to talk on the phone, I wasn't going to be online. But now there's no more separation. Of course, we don't need to have it. So we're constantly connected. And then if we follow McLuhan's idea of sort of the media being extension of, a, of our nervous systems or these devices being extensions of ourselves the ubiquity of these observations doesn't lessen like their efficacy like to say that a phone is an extension of ourself and we've all heard that a million times but it, it is an extension of ourself i can't i mean it's on my desk i don't know why right now there's no function for it is turned over but it's it's there and then when i go down the hallway it's going to come with me. And I mean that's McLuhan's fear I mean he he was nervous that we would be taken over by these things and I don't know how to turn it around and I don't know I don't know what the next step is it's, it's a tough thing to get out of once you're in
0: yeah yeah absolutely one of the other in, insights that that he had that that you discuss in the book is that as you mentioned it Digital, electric media is is an extension of our nervous system, which I think is why a lot of us, you know, if we get, you know, sucked in, or whether you want to use words like addicted or or whatever, or you just use social media or you get into play more <laughs> online, you just feel stretched thin. Uh, like I think of <laughs> like the early scenes of Fellowship of the Ring where <laughs> where Bilbo's talking about feeling like butter scraped over too much bread. You know, that's sort of how it feels sometimes if you're online, if you're extremely online. And one of the another sort of thing that that McLuhan perceived was that electric man has no bodily being. He is literally discarnate. And to bring it back a bit to how his Catholicism informed, informed these types of insights, how did this process of converting to Catholicism, continuing another thing that that he mentioned is that he wanted to convert perceptively instead of religiously. So like with with those things in mind, how did how did his Catholicism inform his insight into media and everything else?
1: Sure. Yeah the, the Second Vatican Council about 1962, 1965, was a really defining moment in the Worldwide Catholic Church, but especially in the American Catholic Church as a, as a time for the church to kind of reconsider its role with modernity. Like, was it going to play by the secular rules, but still retain its anchoring in tradition? Or was it, I mean, what was it going to do? And McLuhan was a rather traditionalist. He, and this is not unusual for converts to Catholicism, even to this day. So he, noticed that in Catholic Mass, there was an increasing usage of microphones. And it made sense, because you, know, you get the people at the back of the church, and they can barely hear what's going on. But he noticed that when you spoke Latin into a microphone, that it sounded like a garbled kind of mess. like It was just unintelligible. And, and your average Catholic in the pews isn't a scholar of Latin in 1960, you know, 1955 or whatever, but they know Mass Latin. And what happened was he he wrote a series of articles saying that this was going to be sort of the death of the liturgy. And what happened soon after that is that church was done in the vernacular, so English in America, and Latin was, for the most part, not celebrated. And McLuhan thought that was a terrible decision. And part of the reason was that he found Latin to be mystical, that it was transformative, that it was unusual. That it was old and in its archaic nature the second you walked into that church it became another acoustic space so he was a big believer in kind of acoustic experience and you know to go back to what you're saying in terms of how this conversion sort of affected him um, he wanted to hold on to those old traditions of the church in a time where the world was changing rapidly and i don't think McLuhan ever thought himself that he could stop the world from changing, nor did he think he should, but he wanted people to be aware of those changes and to be reflective on them and to ask themselves what it meant. And so, for example, television became his kind of ultimate medium when he moved on from that print work of his earlier career. And what McLuhan liked was that no matter what, whether the television content was good or bad, like you had a family sitting together in a room and there was this moment of like communal experience. And he thought there was something powerful in that. And you know, whether or not we've lost it recently, I don't know. But when it comes to the digital kind of element of this, of course, McLuhan, he died in 1980 and he didn't really live to see much of the things that, that we're experiencing in any way. But he did recognize he was, I think a futurist, especially towards the end of his career. And when you talk about this disembodied, disincarnate self, if there's no, if we completely give over to the metaverse, so to speak, ethics start to fall apart, I think, in a traditional way, in a way that protects us. And for McLuhan, that the flesh was necessary and the physicality of this world was necessary to ground us. It's, it's hard to remember that the people with whom we disagree online have physical corporal forms you know that they're hungry that they're sad that they go to sleep at night like it helps to remember those things when we when we dislike people doesn't mean we love them but you know it just helps and and mcclellan's nightmare would be that we lose that completely
0: and do you just to just to go down that that sort of tangent a little bit do you see that playing out as far as within the next these, these are the sort of things that that worry me or or like Occupy at least part of my mind as 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 a parent is like whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality. What are the norms going to be for my child's generation of of how they how they use these things, and also you know my own place and contribution to them as well. But that is sort of the the leading concern. How the fact that augmented reality could be a potential way that. Even though it's a mediated experience, it has its own dangers of applying prejudiced filters on reality itself. Would that be preferable, either to McLuhan or to us, compared to just me being and all of us being in a room jacked into a computer and not having simulated, being fully simulated, and not having this embodied experience?
1: I, I think the I think a lot of these creations. you know, There's this moment of rawness and freedom and turmoil at the start. And I think we're still kind of in that space where there's innovation and there's risk and there's unhealthy things that happen. And then sooner or later, someone has to anchor them in in some sort of ethics. And that process probably is not best done via the companies who provide those things to us. (laughs) You know, so...
0: uh, (laughs) That is an understatement.
1: Yeah. So, you know, the question is, well, where does it come from? And I don't know what the best arbiter of that is, but I'm a big proponent of, of I believe that digital literacy should be a course, multiple courses in, in one's high school experience and one's college experience. I think the assumption that the widespread participation of people online prepares them to be online doesn't work because, I mean, we know as adults, there was no preparation for this to sort of happen. And I remember like the AOL days not being prepared for it and the messenger days not being prepared for it. Like there was never, we were never made ready for it. And then those things were ancient compared to what we're using now. Right. Oh, for sure.
0: Yeah. So
1: if we're on this sort of highway and, and we are just like, thrown on it when no one taught us how to drive it's 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 a mess when you bring up kids you know I think McLuhan would feel that the ultimate problem is the lack of feeling that you're worth something sort of I mean he would have a religious spin on it of course but you know the idea that if, if we don't believe that we're worth anything then the way that we treat others and the way that we are treated online can go downhill really quickly but if we think that we're worth something and the people that we interact with are worth something, then that's where the ethics can find its footing. So we better figure it out soon because, you
0: know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely agree that entrusting those types of deep ethical questions to the corporations that benefit mightily from our use of them is not the right move. Like... Uh, There's definitely some fascinating things in like uh, Shannon Valor's book, Technology and the Virtues, is a really good exploration of technomoral technomoral virtues, is what she calls them, which is just fascinating. And the only other things I can think of are actually parallels in in fiction that authors have done, like Werner Vinge's Rainbow's End, which is largely about, the plot is largely sort of a stranger in a strange land of a Alzheimer's patient who sort of hits the medical lottery and then has the body of a of a young person again but has to go to a vocational school in order to learn how to use augmented reality type internet. So I like for there to be some secular version of like a small catechism mm-hmm. <laughs> for digital life is is not the worst idea. <laughs> like it it could certainly be administered by public schools or <laughs> any any type of thing but but i i agree thank you for going down that <laughs> yeah. going down that particular lane with me i i do want to backtrack and talk about one thing in particular about his some of his statements about the printing press and sort of how and about literacy and one of his sort of beliefs you you mentioned earlier that he was a proponent of auditory experience of acoustic space. And a lot of, um, if you go onto Spotify, you can actually find the album, The Medium is the Massage. And he he talks about, you know, in that it's basically a performance version of his book. And he, he contrasts the sort of, the linear aspect of, of writing, of printed writing versus the sort of more scattershot world of, of the ear. But one of the things that stood out to me and maybe this is my own background, he said, uh, you quoted his writing, that the new homogeneity of the printed page seemed to inspire a subliminal faith in the validity of the printed Bible as bypassing the traditional authority of the church and essentially that the nature of the mass-produced Bible had the power of creating a new Hypnotic superstition of the book as independent of and uncontaminated by human agency. That seems to me to sort of imply very heavily that the doctrine of inerrancy in a lot of fundamentalist strains of Christianity may not have been possible without the printing press. Do you think that that's like a, a valid. The, I, I sort of. That sort of stuck out to me while reading the book because a lot of our lawmakers believe that and it literally guides policy in our country. So it still has relevancy for us. Is that a, is that a fair reading of what, what McLuhan is sort of saying about the impact of print itself?
1: I think so. I think McLuhan, his, I mean, Gutenberg, of course, based on the title of that book, but also the interspersed kind of description of, of, the press and, and his other works, you know, it was really important to McLuhan in terms of, as you say, like this paradigm shifting moment where it seemed to have been not mere happenstance that the Priven Word and biblical texts, psalters, missiles, hymnals, you know, these things kind of went hand in hand. McLuhan was, for all of his, I guess, conservative predilections, was was very much a, a non literalist reader of scripture. You know, he was talking about how the Catholic Church was built on, on the pun of Peter Stone, you know, the rock upon the church. So he, he, he liked when language sort of played around a little bit. I think when, when you talk about inerrancy, when you talk about mass production, when you talk about a text that went from scribes and scholars, people with a deep understanding of it, to being able to be reproduced by anyone at any time in any version that one wanted, it then creates this weird kind of democratization of, 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 a, of the sacred, which is both sometimes good, of course, but also in this instance can be quite problematic. M- McLuhan, I think McLuhan was nervous about the fact that I mean, he would, I mean, he argued in Gutenberg Galaxy and elsewhere that individuality went away with the print world in, in, in many forms that, that we, we became this kind of uniform self, collective self that he thought was, was an issue. And that only when we got back to not exactly a primitive storytelling, but a maybe more oral inclined storytelling, a personable storytelling that we can reclaim kind of that individuality. I mean, when McLuhan converted, he was reading the Bible, the Church Fathers, quite heavily. So he was, I think his son might have said that he was the most well-read Bible knowledge. I mean, he had the best knowledge of the Bible of anyone he ever met. So for McLuhan, the concept of the Bible as the as a book or the book was was a useful metaphor. And in, in Catholicism, because that's really the only perception I have, Biblical exegesis, literary modes of the Bible, are something that is commonly spoken about. That it is seen as a text that is incredibly complicated and something that is handled via scholarship, like that. There's a deep scholarly tradition of this book, which I think I'm inferring from the way that you're talking about it in other traditions. That might not always be true.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is definitely an element of of personal interpretation, and there and there is also, but other groups, especially within different parts of evangelicalism, uh, which is my bailiwick, they they create their own method of developing that authority. But it is generally done with a, a number of assumptions underlying it. One of the one of the major ones is, uh, especially. Since you know the the reaction against high criticism going all the way back to like the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, is is the belief in the inerrancy going in, in in the inerrancy of the biblical text that there is no error and uh, that that becomes that it's a, it's a completely ideological stance. So, but but yes, that is definitely present in in many parts of evangelicalism is the belief in the inerrancy and that if, if it is not inerrant, then all these other things are dependent upon it, which makes faith crises or going to college and learning about these things (laughs) suspect to being damaging to one's faith. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, yeah. (laughs) it's definitely not, not a simple thing, but the way in which McLuhan in particular has a way of shining a light on how different technological modes affect religiosity and how religious authority, like literal authority and, other, uh, and influence, sort of goes along with literacy, both in the scribal period, following into print, and even today. So it's, it's definitely fascinating. Do you think that we have sort of arrived at McLuhan's vision of the global village, like with our sort of social media environment being what it is, very cacophonous, lots of voices, very difficult to discern. There's still the presence of a lot of these legacy media spaces, and they still have a lot of capital. But they're not the only players anymore. Do you think that we've sort of stepped into McLuhan's world.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because I think that the global village for him was a a really bad place. He once referred to it as an Ann Landers column writ large, which is, I don't know if people know what Ann Landers or was anymore, but like this idea of, of judgment and gossip like being made public. And the idea that when we know more about each other, And we know we're more in tuned with one's daily actions as we are online with updates and retweets, favorites, and so on, that the more we're going to dislike each other and find discord, that it's inevitable. And so the global village for him in a utopian vision could be good If only because it forced us to recognize that experience could be simultaneously had by someone as we are right now, you know, geographically pretty far from each other. But the issue for McLuhan, who definitely in his religious vision of this was nervous it would be manipulated against us, that he ultimately thought the, you know, tendency, for example, of people to fight on Twitter, why would it surprise any of us? You know, given the kind of the flamethrowers, and we're in like that endless tunnel, and there's no air. That we have to, we're going to fight sooner or later. And what McLuhan and and people who have interpreted McLuhan have tried to, I guess, in the optimistic sense, think of is so. In what way could we make this better? And in what way could we be online together, um, electronically connected, participating in each other's lives? In sometimes incredibly deep ways, how do you make that healthy? I don't know because I think, you know, if I think of like a day on Twitter, someone will share a ridiculous kind of joke and also say what they're really deeply feeling in the next tweet. So why is this medium the place for both of those things? Why don't other media in their life offer them that avenue? You know, so if this was 1950, 1960 in McLuhan's time and you wanted to tell a joke or you wanted to say like your existential crisis moment, where would that information go? Well, I guess it would go in a journal, in a phone call, in a conversation with family member, friend. Only newspaper writers and performers would project it to the public. So we've all become. Celebrities, faux celebrities in the sense that, you know, anyone could find our information. So we're all, we're we're performers, but we don't know who the audience is. We're unpaid for our performances, but they're deeply personal. It's, it's, it's the mess. And, you know, as you mentioned before, it's tough for adults. And then for someone who's like 14, it must be impossible and could be soul crushing at some level. And because McLuhan didn't live to see it, you know, we, we don't ultimately know his escape method, but I think his interpretation of the electronic coming world at least shows us that the self-awareness has to be there and the acknowledgement of the changing of the environment has to be there and the recognition that just because we can access these places and participate in these spaces doesn't mean we have to always, that we can kind of turn away from them if we need to.
0: Did you feel that way while you're writing the book that you had to turn away from these things cuz I'm I'm in the process of working on a book right now and like even though I'm writing very much about the internet I'm reading about the internet I can't be on the internet while I do that And I just think that's such a like I don't know if that's true like if I if I was writing a book about libraries I could go to a library <laughs> you know but I I can't be online and write about being online. Does that make sense?
1: (laughs) It, it, It does because it's possible. Well, it's possible that you you're engaging it in a way that you hadn't previously, or you're perceiving it in a way you haven't previously, or you're reconsidering assumptions, which have forced you to reconsider the presentation of the self and the investment. You know, every tweet, However stupid it might be is a text offered to an audience. And as writers, you know, whether people are writers for publication or writers for their own you know in, in a narrative journaling sense or diary sense, it matters how people receive it. So if that becomes like the way in which we communicate, where we, we tweet something inane or meaningful or whatever, and then we're sort of just waiting for the response. Like, what happens to the rest of life in that interim? So for me, writing this book, I, I never really went offline because every time I have tweeted doing that, I'm back in like seven hours. <laughs> um, just because it's just like, it's like impossible to not be. But I did find myself just having kind of like a bad taste about it all, I guess you can say. Like, it just felt... I just, I just wondered why we've given into it so so wholeheartedly.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that seems to that um, sort of side eyeing it all. Like it, it's it's become almost a, an entire genre, right? Like from the social dilemma, featuring you know product product designers and managers that literally created the the mechanisms to all sorts of books, whether it's books about. A digital literacy like reader come home or the shallows like yeah we're all we're all sort of i i maybe that's maybe i'm feeling very like i'm on i'm just vibing with that and i, I can't believe i just said that but you know i'm on that same wavelength mm-hmm. i feel like i'm too old to say vibing but <laughs> but it just it definitely seems to be like maybe maybe it's just a, a level of mass exhaustion with it mm-hmm. i'm not sure I'm Well, not if we sure.
1: I mean, if we've been so invested in it, especially in the last few years, mm-hmm. by a need to be. And no, it is exhausting. And I think that's part of the thing that you bring up and also that societally we have to reckon with is that the kinesthetic experience of being in front of the screen is a very tiring thing. And the the amount of texts that we create online via tweets or posts is a high amount of of text and, and narrative and persona and performance and all those things, and they take a lot out of people, and in a spiritual sense, can be tremendously exhausting.
0: And these things are be- becoming ways, and I mean, this this show is an extension of that. I'm not unaware of that. Like the media, actually, new media has always allowed people to explore new avenues of spirituality, religious thought, religious practice. And that's definitely seeming to happen now. There's, you know, there is an idea that sort of mechanical or print world was actually the Gutenberg parenthesis. That that was the exception. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like a 500-year mm-hmm. exception. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're sort of back to where we were, but with new things. But <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't need it's it's really these are the sort of things that I think mcLuhan a lot of his a lot of his texts are sort of provocations. you know they're they're things to make you think. and i I find that that really valuable. and in uh, so ne- near the end of your book you you talk about how by the end of his life, he had sort of faded. He had some health challenges and um, was no longer in in the public eye, but then, his his work has had a has had legs. You know, it continues to to find fans. continues to find people. One of them being you mentioned uh, Kevin Kelly, who is one of the founding editors of Wired. He wrote a book called What Technology Wants, which uh, sort of dovetails with this idea that uh, explores the idea that um that technology has its own almost its own will and should be considered like an eighth. Animal kingdom, almost. The technium is what he calls it. Within within that context of, of sort of his the legacy and a, starting at at least starting with Kelly and like is there the the vision beyond sort of the pessimistic vision of of the global village that we live in now? Is there another side of McLuhan's religious vision that does sort of, if not optimistic? Maybe pragmatic or hopeful. Maybe let's let's land on hopeful, like a hopeful vision of of where we're going with the media that we create and what the society and religions and beliefs that those allow. Uh, is there is there a hopeful bent to some of his vision too?
1: Yeah, I do think so. I think every time that I, you know, my family watch virtual mass. In 2020, 2021, we, we were in McLuhan's best possible vision of this kind of, this sacramental encounter from a distance when it was impossible to do otherwise. I think that he forces us to think, at least in the Catholic Church about what sacraments really are, what, what, if we believe in an incarnate vision of the world, if Christ is everywhere, why wouldn't he be? online like in the internet like why would not it be there why is that a place that is closed to to him so i think i mean certainly in terms of accessibility and reaching people for whom going to church is, is not physically possible or not physically advantageous it, it opened up this option that i'm hoping people involved with the church and ministry will will pursue you know i've heard from both ends of the spectrum i've heard from people who want to get them back in the church physically as fast as they can and i'm i'm not immune to their financial concerns but i also think that there was something almost magical about i mean it's like that image of pope francis and you know in the square that famous picture of him in like 2020 where he's Almost alone in that wide open abandoned space. And it was, we weren't physically with him, but we were experiencing it at the same time when we saw him. And that unites people. So if, if, so I think one of the tricky things with religion is that sometimes religious people want to be supernatural, but only to a point. They don't want to go too far because then, but to me, like if, if you're going to buy, if you're going to buy the big story, Those other supernatural stories kind of connected to that, and um, an incarnational vision of the world for me goes pretty well with a digital vision done right. Um, It's another extension of the the physical. It's another extension of the mind. And, And you know, when Kevin Kelly and others at Wired chose McLuhan as their patron saint, you know, putting him on the masthead of the magazine, writing articles about him in early issues. These were all. I mean, Kelly, at that time, he grew up Catholic and, and some of the other editors were still Catholic. They knew what they were doing. They were they were pointing towards a guy who was spiritual and religious and Eucharistic in his vision of, of what media could be. So for me, we shouldn't just kind of give up and give in, I guess. So I, I, I tend to not be as pessimistic as McLuhan at his most pessimistic. I just tend to be, I just want the self-awareness to be present people because I think it's very easy to not be self-aware online and to have it go badly quickly, but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, just, it really doesn't. And I know it's hard, for, you know, to, to make it the other way, but you know, it's worth it.
0: Right. Right. Well, I, I really uh, appreciated this book just because it, it did wrestle with these things that, that like really go together. I I know, and like maybe maybe people don't think of these things as going together as sort of religious or spiritual or philosophical pursuit of understanding and also understanding how we. Um, but maybe maybe now that's not as much of a leap because we all do mediate everything through major platforms and devices. And but the way the way that this book. Frames, frames Things, I think, is, is really fascinating and shed a new light on McLuhan's background. The only other biography I'd, I'd really read is You Know Nothing of My Work by Douglas Copeland, which was, which was definitely interesting, definitely a different type of approach. But to approach McLuhan's religious and spiritual understanding of the world as central and essential to his, his work that he developed was was really fascinating and I'll definitely carry that with me thank you for for talking with me about this and and sort of (laughs) going whichever way you know whichever way the (laughs) the conversation would wind uh, which which felt appropriate (laughs) while talking about McLuhan where can people find the book where can they find anything else Nick that that you want to mention here at the end
1: Sure. Um, the book is is published by Fortress Press. It's available online, all the, the major and usual places. The uh, My website is www.nickrepatrazone.com, and my writing, previous books are available there.
0: Wonderful. And again, the book is Digital Communion, Marsha McLuhan's Spiritual Vision for a Virtual Age. Nick, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much.